Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. I'm here with Tom Isett, uh, who has written the book called Writing in the, in the Zone Rouge, uh, The Tour of the Battlefields 1919, Cycling's Toughest Ever Stage Race. Uh, I think it's probably appropriate to start our conversation today with acknowledging that today is significant uh, in terms of historical significance being the first day of the Battle of the Somme. Uh, We are at 106 years beyond that uh, opening battle. And you have a personal connection to this uh, particular battle and area uh, in, in, in France. And so I think let's start by talking about what that personal connection is with your own family history. I think I had initially asked you about your grandfather and your great uncle. But as I went back and was checking out the book again last night, I, you have two grandfathers um, who were fighting at the Western Front. Uh, I don't think both of them were in this area, but you can get into more about the details about this, the, the family connection. Yeah. Um, like a lot of Brits, my family was heavily involved in the First World War. Um, I had, it was actually one grandfather and three great uncles who fought. Uh, my, gr- my maternal grandfather was in the artillery on the Somme. Uh, my great uncle was in the uh, South Wales Borderers Regiment on the Somme. Um, they were one of the, uh, the units that went over in the first wave uh, and something like 400 of the 700 men who went over were killed or seriously wounded in the first 20 minutes. So, so yeah, the Somme means a lot to me personally. It's, it means a lot to the British as well. Um, we've never really got over the First World War. Um, it still haunts us uh, in a quite a quite a, a strange way you know it was a hundred plus years ago but yet still we're we're so absorbed by it um and i'm no different i i have traced my ancestry i've been to look at the places where they fought uh i've been to visit my great uncle who's buried in flanders uh my grandfather survived it um came home but he fired a cannon for four years and was completely deaf. So uh, he never heard properly again. Uh, but that's, that's my connection. But I am very, very typical of a lot of British people in that respect. One of the aspects of your book that I really appreciated is how you wove in uh, the, the, your personal connection to the war, your own journey uh, retracing the cycling uh, route around the, the the Western Front and the environmental air, environs around, uh, and also the the history of the original race and the photos that you included. You, ha- you included some spectacular photos, uh, one of which seemed quite profound to mention, which is the Tipval Memorial. 
Uh, and yep. there have, I mean, literally within the past hour, there's been uh, a ceremony at Tip Vault. And so for people, listeners, particularly in the United States who may not know what this, uh, what this memorial means, can you give a little bit of context for that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I, I don't know how, how well your, your listeners know about the First World War, but a huge number of people um, were killed in the artillery bombardments and they were unidentifiable afterwards. So a lot of men were put into graves without a... Thousands of them never even got a grave. Um, if you were killed in an attack on no man's land, the subsequent bombardments basically blasted corpses into tiny pieces. So there was nothing to recover. So uh, across the Western Front, there are huge memorials where they list uh, the names of the men who were killed who have no known grave. Teepval is one of the biggest ones. There are 73,000 names on that memorial uh, of men who were never found. Um, there are another 56,000 or so on the men in gates. Um, uh, even more time time caught so so there are memorials along the western front that commemorate people who were never seen again um, they didn't get a burial place um, there are a couple of places on the teepval memorial where names have been uh, taken off because they found um, a body they've been able to identify that body and bury them in a named grave um, but there are still hundreds of thousands out there um, nameless and lost. I'm wondering from a psychological uh, perspective if this is part of the um, ongoing draw, uh, particularly for for British uh, people coming back uh, to the Western Front, this idea uh, of so many unknown soldiers who who were not found their name but they're sort of out there um and and their their stories may not be known and their essence is there but there's there's something about that that draws people back to these sites yeah absolutely i mean it's a desperately sad thing when you think of all those young men um obliterated um the british there is a sort of um there's a thing in the British psyche, which is it's about the lost generation. There is this myth that there was a lost generation. Um, and it, it, it's not really true in that, you know, a lot of men died. But but in terms of percentage, um, you know, not not that many men who went into the army actually died in in combat. So so it's a bit of a myth, but but it's a it's a well-established British myth that, you know, an entire generation was lost to a war. Um, and being British, we have this um, this blindness about our own exceptionalism. And we think we step up and save everybody when they need saving, um, uh, <laughs> which is uh, it's not entirely the case. But uh, there, there is this British kind of thing that we we lost a generation um, during that war, um, and that you know there was a big emotional um, response in Britain after the war. 
uh, a significant number of people went to the battlefields in the 1920s, either to visit the grave of a relative or to see where that relative had fought and died. And a lot of men went back to see where they had fought and where their friends had died. So, so there was a big tourist boom in the 20s, um, which completely played on that, that kind of myth of a lost generation. Uh, so in addition to your personal connection uh, with your ancestors having fought at the Western Front, uh, the, the other interesting piece personally for you that ties in is that you're a cyclist. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, from what you've written about in, in the book, these, all these factors came together uh, and you discovered about th that there was um, a very interesting cycling race in 1919. Um, and you learned about this in, a, I think, a, a cycling history book. Yep. Yep. A single line in a, sing uh, in a cycling history book mentioned this race, the Circuit de Champs de Bataille, uh, the Tour of the Battlefields. Um, and as a journalist, it, you know, uh, an on a great story that hasn't yet been told is it's, you know, uh, it's what we're all after. So I, I just read a mention of this, this race in a, in a cycling history book, and I did a bit of research, um, and that brought me to um, you know, the fact that there was a bike race across World War I battlefields six months after the war had finished. And to me, I knew a bit about the, the First World War because I'd done some genealogical research into my, my family, uh, and the idea of having a bike race across these utterly destroyed parts of France and Belgium um, was extraordinary to me. Um, so I, I wrote an article for a cycling magazine about the race and then thought, actually, wouldn't it be fun if I went and followed the route of the race myself, um, which was a, an extraordinary experience. It was, yeah, 1,500 miles, um, and I got to look at, uh, all of the, the significant battlefields on the Western Front. How much of the story of the original race had you uh, really solidified before you cycled yourself? Uh, <laughs> yes, it turned out that the race was so terrible um, for the participants and for the organisers um, that it never really made it into the history books. So, so the only sources I had were newspapers from 1919. Um, so actually, in terms of the, the amount of information, there wasn't an awful lot. You know, I, I knew the outline of the race, um, but compared to equivalent Tour de France's or Giro d'Italia's, um, the, the amount of information was, was quite small. Um, and so one of the reasons I wanted to ride it was that it would allow me to see the things that they had seen, to experience a little bit of what they did. Um, obviously, you know, nothing compared to the things that they went through, um, but it, it did give me an insight into, into what they endured. And that was, that, that was my primary reason for doing it myself as well. Uh being a person who is is interested in in the pilgrimages that were occurring um in the, in the 1920s i was struck by how different this race was to what i've been reading about 
even the tours to the battlefields, uh, the Michelin books, there talk about. I mean, there's some sense of that this is kind of sacred territory, even if the journeys themselves weren't called pilgrimages. Some people called them that, others did not. Others called them battlefield tours, as you know. But this cycling race through ruins, through battlefields, it's something almost entirely different. Uh, and can you speak more to that? Is that, I mean, I mean is that how I'm, how I'm conceptualizing it? Is that right? Uh, you are absolutely right. And it seems slightly odd to us. You know, imagine organizing a race for next summer through the Ukraine. Um, you know, you wouldn't. <laughs> um, but the, the main reason for this race was to sell newspapers. And in the 1920s, a guarantee, you know, without TV, without radio, uh, people read newspapers for their sports news and their entertainment. So if you put on a prestigious cycling event, um, several thousand more people a day would buy your newspaper as a result. So it was, it was pure marketing from the newspaper point of view. It was also a bit of triumphalism from the French nationalists um, who very pleased to have beaten Germany, very pleased to have got uh, Alsace and Lorraine back from the Germans. Uh, they'd taken it in the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. So part of it was about thumbing their noses at the vanquished foe. Part of it was to sell more newspapers. Um, and part of it was to give the general public something other than the damn war to think about. You know, they'd had shortages for five years, four years. Um, you know, life had been really grim for, for most of the population of France and Belgium for, for the duration of the war. So a big sporting event was deemed to be a suitable celebration of victory, of renewal, um, and it seems slightly odd to us that they are racing through places where there are still corpses being recovered and still live ammunition being detonated. Um, but <laughs> cycling in, in those days was a very tough, very hardcore sport. Um, and they thought nothing of making these guys ride for 200 miles across terrible roads in appalling conditions because it showed manliness. The other thing, the French were obsessed by the physical weakness of the average Frenchman before the war. And, and the chattering classes sort of threw their hands up in horror at how useless French manhood was. So having won the war, this was now a, a way of demonstrating French superiority, if you like. Uh, but not without performance enhancing uh uh drugs i this was such a tantalizing fact that you talked about this uh this cocktail of of substances that was used to enhance performance um which is interesting just given all of the scandals that have happened over the past 15 to 20 years i did not realize that uh, th this is there's a long history in cycling of this type of uh performance enhancing um substance use yeah, absolutely. And not just in cycling, in all sports in those days, because it wasn't banned, you know, it was there was nothing to say you couldn't take a load of cocaine, amphetamines, steroids, you know, whatever it was you wanted to take, you could, and it wasn't against the law. Um, so 
in those days, you know, I think the thing you're referring to is the pot belge, which is basically a, a, a liquid drink of, I think, uh, yeah, amphetamines, cocaine, analgesics, a bit of strychnine just to keep the heart rate up. Uh, so all of these things mixed in with alcohol and then drunk towards the end of the day when you needed a bit of extra oomph. Um, and of course, it gave them extra oomph, but then they couldn't sleep for 48 hours either. Yeah, very. And so and with with your own um, cycling, you you had a taste of the not a taste, literally of the performance enhancing drugs. But you had a you 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 were able to get a sense of the conditions, despite the fact that they're you know, the, the roads in many places have been rebuilt. You're not riding through. Um, you know, artillery Shell shelled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so what was that like for you, though, as a cyclist um, in in the context of the difficulty um, of the route? I, you talk with a humor at times about um, the the going uphill, very steep hills and not realizing and, and the the problems that the sat nav caused you um, yeah. with the route. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I look at these guys and in the race, they're doing you know, 200 miles a day, at least um, on a bike that is probably two, two or three times heavier than my bike. Um, those bikes, they only had two gears. I've got 22. Um, and so for me riding it, it was ridiculously easy compared to, to what they had to put up with. Um, you know, the longest stage of this race, it took place in sleet and snow and very strong winds over 300 kilometers, so 200 odd miles. Um, and the fastest finisher was 19 hours, I think it was, uh, 18 hours, 28 minutes. So if you can imagine full on physical exertion in the snow for 18 hours, that's what they were doing, um, you know. Uh, so for me to do eight hours gentle cycling on smooth tarmac on a modern bike was incredibly easy, really. And people say to me, how can you do 60 miles a day? If you're not a cyclist, that might seem extremely odd. But but believe me, if you're if you're used to cycling a bit, then 60, 70 miles in a day is pretty simple. It's reasonably straightforward. It's not difficult. I stupidly fell off on some Belgian cobbles and broke three ribs. So that added a sort of discomfort to the journey that, um, <laughs> that I didn't really want. But, but you know, that was, it, if, if it happened to one of those races, they just pick themselves off, dust themselves off and get on with it. You know, they're, they're, they're hard and they're drugged to the eyeballs. So um, I'm not hard and I wasn't drugged to the eyeballs. I want to ask you uh, about a, a part, a, a, a section, a paragraph um, mm. from the book that I found to be very moving. And I wanted to ask about what you were thinking about when you uh, reflected <laughs> oh here. Um, you said back on the road, the only sound was the hiss of tires on the wet tarmac. On either side, the woods were dusted with snow and couldn't have looked more beautiful or more tragic. The snow stung my face, but I didn't care. I was in an extraordinary place, in extraordinary weather, and seething with emotions, sadness, gratitude, awe, 
anger, wonder, pity, indignation, compassion. Battlefields do this to me. I'd make a terrible historian because I feel completely unable to detach myself emotionally from what these men went through. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I wear my heart on my sleeve in a big way. <laughs> um, for me, I, I, I like to project myself into other people's shoes. Um, I think it's one of the reasons I find the First World War more engaging than the Second World War or other things, because there are physical remains. And if there's a physical remain, I can, I can project myself there and I can try and understand what those men went through. Um, I also quite like the idea of time not being linear. Um, one of my favorite authors is, is Peter Aykroyd, and he writes history, but very much from a non-linear point of view. So the potential ability to, to kind of time travel. So when I was that particular paragraph, I'd just been to Boisac, um, which is where the Band of Brothers uh, fighting happened. And I'd stood in those foxholes and I had experienced a feeling, a sensation, a, a, a fear, um, an exaltation, all sorts of, because I'm trying to understand what those men went through. And I can never do it as a, you know, as a, uh, a boomer, I, <laughs> I've led the luckiest life imaginable. And, uh, you know, I've never had to go to war, never suffered in any way like that. So, so I'm trying to put myself into the, the mindset of those guys, trying to understand what it was that allowed them to do something that is completely incomprehensible to me you know to put my life on the line for a theory a cause you know I might do it for my family but you know so so there are all these things that uh, kind of go around in my head and that particular moment that you were reading about there I was I was on a road that has immense cycling historical significance, as well as immense uh, battlefield significance. And it all kind of mixed together in my head. So there's, I am literally churning with emotions. Um, and that, I, that was me trying to kind of convey that, that emotion that I feel, particularly when I think, uh, when I'm on First World War battlefields, and I try and project myself into, you know, where my grandfather, what was going on in his mind? He never talked about it afterwards, but, you know, what was he thinking? What was he feeling? Um, and I want to try and understand that. Um, and so there's all this kind of emotional outpouring <laughs> that happens sometimes. And well, I, I, am yeah, I, am I am reduced to tears quite often on those battlefields, you know, at Verdun, where you look at the uh, the cemetery that's got 16,000 headstones, and it's just huge. And I think you know, each one of those was a, a frightened kid, basically. Um, and, you know, imagining my own sons projected into that is is just heartbreaking, and it, it, it messes with me emotionally. Oh, I find myself experiencing very similar, if not the same. I, I appreciate how precise uh, you were in labeling the emotions because I do think you captured an essence of an experience. Mm. 
being in a in in the midst of battlefields or being in the midst of a cemetery and thinking there is something very provocative where we do project what the what would it have been like to to feel an experience as the soldier did or what if it what would this be like for us or our own children or mm. there's there's something very personal about these places yeah. that uh similarly uh, for me at Verdun, the ossuary it, it's i mean of course you know looking out at the expanse of graves but then looking it's very personal as well with the all of the bones tangled together mm. and shocking and yet we're still close enough to have heard stories from family members about yeah. so yeah. so it it is it's non-linear in some sense because it all mingles together uh, literally. Um, yeah. so, but, but it is interesting, this first world war space, uh, I am finding this and I'm a newcomer to it. Um, but it, there, there's something very gripping about it. Yeah, there is, it, it's compulsive in, in some, in some ways that it's, it's quite di difficult to identify why that is. And I think there are lots of different reasons and we all bring our own set of, you know, prejudices and reasons and emotions to it. Um, but yeah, those, those ossuaries, those cemeteries, they are, uh, overwhelming sometimes. Um, I remember the first time I went to Teepval, um, you know, there, are, there are these big white panels around the bottom of this huge arch. And as you get closer, you realize that there are actually thousands and thousands and thousands of names carved onto them. And I, the first time I saw that, I was utterly overwhelmed by just the sheer scale of the loss. Um, and I think that's, that's a, a significant part of it for me. Uh, you, you also, in the book, um, deal with the issue of the German cemeteries and German <laughs> soldiers with... Um, empathy uh that these soldiers were also young men um with families and this is a this is interesting to me because i'm i'm seeing the same and i'm having the same kind of curiosities about this and and wondering this is a, a obviously an evolved approach to seeing um to seeing the the german graves um, and I, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you're thinking around this. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I stand at uh, Dozingham Cemetery looking at the, the headstone of my great uncle. Um, and then I go to the Langemark German Cemetery, which probably contains the man that shot my uncle, my great uncle. And... Uh, I bring all sorts of terrible British prejudices to this. Um, I have been brought up to look at Commonwealth war grave cemeteries as simple, as beautiful and egalitarian. You know, every headstone is the same. And I go to Langmark and there are these big pits full of dead Germans. Um, and... I completely understand why that is. You know, the Belgians weren't going to hand over huge tracts of land to build nice cemeteries for the invaders. Um, so, but I, I do find the Germans, most of the German cemeteries, a bit uh, brutalist, I suppose. Langemark, I think, is particularly awful. 
Um, there are much nicer ones, but but there is a sort of neglect to them, which I find desperately sad. I went to one on the in the Argonne, and and I was clearly the only person who had been there for years, possibly, apart from the bloke who cut the grass. Um, you know, all the headstones were wonky. There were no flowers. It was just, it just felt like these poor guys had been left there, buried, left, and basically forgotten about. You know, everyone's a bit embarrassed. And I, and I do find it interesting how losing sides remember their dead um, and how, you know, they, they, there's no gloriousness. There is no glory in dead, the death in war anyway, but, but the French cemeteries, the British cemeteries, they have a sort of triumphalist feel to them, whereas the Germans have a neglected feel, which I find very sad because, you know, those young kids, they were just the same as the British or the French kids. You know, they're young men, 20, 24, whatever. Um, they didn't want to be there any more than our guys did. Um, and so I, I feel desperately sad on their behalf that they don't, I don't feel that they get the, um, the credit they deserve, I suppose, in some respects. I don't know if, if um, the cemetery is the same uh, in the Argonne, what you just talked about, but I was also struck by um, that, that you noted the presence of, of the Jewish uh, graves mixed with the Christian graves mm. and that you had identified a soldier um, called Fritz Kaufman and you placed a stone on his grave and I am wondering what 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 drew you to that and what that meant for you <laughs> well it's uh I'm not Jewish um, but it is a Jewish tradition to leave a pebble on a, a gravestone to to say I was here I remembered uh, and I just felt you know the, the, the Jewish soldiers of of the German army in the first world war they fought as well as any, everybody else they won medals they were an integral part 100,000 Jews um, took up arms for Germany in 1914 um, and within a decade of the end of that war, it was illegal to commemorate them uh, under the Nazi uh, racial laws. So it, it was something I felt I needed to do for, for Fritz. You know, it was an acknowledgement. Um, and if anyone ever came to visit thereafter, they would know that someone had been there and someone had given Fritz at least a passing thought. So that, you know, that was my tribute to him if you like i've had very similar thoughts um in bello um at the german cemetery mm. there because there are um maybe around eight or ten um jewish graves in the yeah. cemetery which is is striking given mm. what we know about uh, about history at this point uh and and so it is an interesting, it's an interesting commentary on a particular point in history, yeah. um, right? That, that this, that these soldiers were serving together, they're lying in, in, you know, in, in death together mm. um, and were, and then not, you know, not, um, 
commemorated day. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a snapshot of a particular time, uh, a very short period of time, mercifully, but it was, you know, the fact that, that, that Germany was quite prepared to sacrifice these men and was very happy to have them fighting. Uh, and to go from that to uh, you know, the Holocaust in 15 years, it's, you know, it, that, is, that is a remarkable level and speed of change. Um, I mean, one thing I do love about the, the battlefields of the Western Front is you get all these religions mixed together. So... You know, if you go to the Chemin des Dames, which was a very famous French battlefield, you will have Senegalese Muslims buried shoulder to shoulder with French Christians. And they're all in the same place. OK, they have different headstones. The Muslim ones are different from the Christian ones. But it, it, it's a really lovely demonstration of the fact that there weren't these terrible divisions or at least there probably were divisions but they weren't as obvious as they currently are and for me to see a jewish headstone a muslim headstone and a christian headstone in a row um it, it fills me with hope um that maybe one day we can stand shoulder to shoulder again um and not let religious differences divide us and i think you know that's that's something i find very powerful it is powerful, and I, it, I think it is precisely why visits to these battlefields are important, because it, they, at the very least, are thought-provoking in exactly this line of thinking, in questioning how is this possible that all of these soldiers are here together, what does it mean, and certainly what does it mean for the future and the world that we want and, and, and want to contribute to creating. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, yeah, we can learn, we should be able to look back and go, well, for, for centuries, Jews, Christians, Muslims have managed to coexist without killing each other. Um, surely we can get back to that place. Uh, I, I wanted, speaking of the Shaman Dam and some of the side um, track visits, I did see that you had visited uh, the, the community of Bello and Bella Wood, mm. um, which of course is, is important to Americans. And you also made a couple of observations, excuse me, observations about American monuments um, that I'd like for you to talk a, a little bit about because I, I, I appreciate your observations. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my, my, my observation was merely that American memorials are on a, an epic scale. Um, you know, that sort of neoclassical, the one on Hill 204 outside, uh, I can't remember where Chateau it is. Chateau Thierry. That's yeah. the one. Um, you know, that is a huge memorial, absolutely enormous. Um, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I think they're they're really striking, um, but they are, uh, you know, over here in Europe, we do have a bit of a joke about how everything in America is bigger and better than anywhere else, and that certainly applies to some of these memorials. They are they are enormous, and the the one at Bastogne um, for the Battle of the Bulge, you know, that huge um, star shaped one, uh, they are fantastic, but they are big. You know, very big and very imposing. Um, and that says something to me about America's view of itself immediately post-war. You know, uh, uh, 
from my point of view, it was when America arrived as a truly global influence. Um, and uh, America, subsequent to the First World War, became an immensely powerful and important player on the world stage. And it seemed to be that these memorials reflect that absolutely. Um, so what was your experience like um, at Bellawood? And um, of course, this is a, a community that I've been working in and I mm. have a very strong uh, affection and ties to, um, well, kind of the whole area. It's not just the, you know, the, the woods, but also the, the village um, and, the, and the surrounding area. Uh, and, and I'm curious what that visit was like for you um, as a non-American and what did you, what meaning did you bring in with you when you visited? Um, again, you know, everything you read about Bellowood is, you know, this was where the Marines really kind of earned their spurs. Um, there is a, an area of British World War I research that's quite snooty about the Americans at Bellowood. Um, I, I don't know enough about the actual process of waging war to know whether it was it was good for, I mean, it worked. And the Americans took the wood at very heavy cost. I thought it was a beautiful place. You know, I'm walking around there, uh, beautiful memorial. Um, and and I, I really like the cemetery. The sort of semicircular layout of the cemetery is, is unusual. Um, and I thought, yeah, I found it very moving, um, you know, uh, us Brits have had a few years to get used to this stuff. The Americans, who you know, those guys, the Marines, that was really their first proper taste of the horrors of a mechanized war. Um, and they did brilliantly. But they it must have been such a shock. You know, you can't imagine what it was like for those men um, going in against experienced German defenders. You know, those Germans have been fighting for three years by that point. Um, so the fact that the Americans took that wood and were successful is, is a real testament to the, the grit um, or the stupidity, depending on your point of view. Um, but they, they did the job. They did what they needed to do. Um, and I think uh, as a, a place of memorial, it, it's absolutely wonderful. As I said, I love the semicircular layout around the chapel walking through the woods with the guns and, and stuff is, it, it was so peaceful. Um, I just remember birdsong and that's, that's a thing that I, I pick up on all over these battlefields. Mostly it's um, larks singing. You get them all over the French and Belgian countryside, but um, yeah, the, the woodland birds in Bellow Wood was, was really something. The, uh, I'll be talking a lot more about this um, at, at a later point, but the, the whole area has always been a pilgrimage site uh, mm. for Americans. Um, it has become synonymous with the Marine Corps and certainly is the epicenter of pilgrimage uh, for the Marine Corps. Um, yeah. And there are many other units uh, as well as French units that were engaged there. And I want to acknowledge that. And, and sure. the, the pilgrimage nature of this, of this spot, 
I think gives us an opportunity to explore it from the meaning making and the commemoration and memory um, in a way that allows for individual meaning um, and not so much getting bogged down in the battle history and the narratives, uh, which as you know, are contentious, it's contested. Mm. Um, and this is why, it, I mean, it's so intriguing to me as a pilgrimage uh, site as well, because there's all of these different, oftentimes very hotly contested accounts of what happened there and, and, mm. and why people then came back, uh, uh, particularly Americans, why they returned um, starting, well, really in, in 1919. Um, mm. So yeah, more to come on that, but it, it is interesting to hear um, your, your perspective. I'm interested to hear about the, the snooty British perspective or one perspective on Bellwood. So we can talk later about that because I'd like <laughs> to hear more about what you're referencing. Uh, so thanks for, for talking about what, did you have a chance? Did you see the, the Bellow church, um, when you were there? No, I didn't. I, I only found out about Ernest Strickler afterwards, but I, okay. Um, I, I don't know whether your listeners know about Ernest, but he was uh, he was an American soldier who came back to Bellow Wood, I think, in 1928 um, and committed suicide there. Um, and he had a note in his pocket saying he couldn't live while all his colleagues had died and he wanted to be buried with them. Um, but he wasn't a Marine, so they buried him in the 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 civic churchyard rather than in the military cemetery. Um, I think I've got that right. Um, it, it, it was because he did not, and it, this, this is, this is um, an interesting uh, topic area, but it's because he did not die uh, d d during the war or as a result oh, of wounds, okay. um, which is why he was not buried um, in a, in a war cemetery. Right. Um, yep. However, it does speak to the larger issue around what is a war wound and how do we classify it and yep. mental health um, yeah, the, the and substance abuse. So war lasts far longer than uh, for many people than the end of the war. And yeah. we're, I think we're still grappling with that. We're still not adequately um, categorizing um, impact of war that, that lasts well beyond. Yeah. I mean, he he was clearly suffering from PTSD yes. or, or some yeah. some kind of associated trauma, uh, and I think that's you know that that is what interests me about that story is yes. the poor poor man had lived with his demons for ten years um, and couldn't go on any longer, and and I think so many men um, were so severely damaged by their experiences. Um, that's right, and there were a number of suicides that occurred on battlefields uh, after um, after the war in the decade or you know following the war. So we don't really know about those stories, and we don't, I think, properly attribute them to being victims of the war. Or, but but certainly that's a whole line of research that would be very interesting. Maybe somebody yeah. has already been engaged in it, but it 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 does speak to how we culturally think about war wounds and and you know for many people the, the war kills them it's just yeah. decades later i think it's also worth making the point that some people loved it 
Um, you know, we, yeah. we, we, we kind of go, oh, it was, must have been terrible. But, you know, people like uh, Ernst Junger wrote his book, Storm of Steel, and he just had the best time. He absolutely loved every second of it. Um, and so there are clearly some people who thrived on what we consider to be appalling pointless slaughter. But, you know, for the militarists, they had a right old time. Mussolini was another one who thoroughly enjoyed himself. Um, so I think it's worth mentioning that not everybody came home broken. Some people coped with it very well. Yeah, that's a it, that's a very good point. Uh, to that we need to be a bit more expansive in what how we think about the impact or the experiences of the war, and also motivations. Uh, I mean, not not if if the the men were conscripted, but even now, how we think about what our motivations for military service um, they can be broad and not. It, it isn't just about one uh, particular motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how important, um, there's a lot of paths that have developed, um, over the course of the last hundred years, uh, routes that connect battlefields or sites that are significant to the war. How important do you think it is for people who are cycling or walking or even driving to a certain extent to have knowledge about the war and, and the, what the, the events that they're passing by and through and the buildings, I guess, that they're passing by for ruins or fields? I think it rather depends on, on who you are and what your interests are. I am very much, by inclination, a historian. I'm not a historian, I'm a writer, but, but I am very interested in the history. So I'm always thinking about the history of the areas where I currently am. Um, and so, you know, whether I'm just walking somewhere outside London or around London, I'm thinking about history. And I think if if you're of a historical, uh, if you're interested in history, then then, yeah, uh, understanding the history of the area or in if you're moving from battlefield to battlefield, it helps your understanding if you know what took place, where and when and to a certain extent, why. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, there is there is the Western Front Way, which is a walk that effectively goes from uh, the Belgian coast down to the Swiss border. Um, that's been something that people have been working on for a while. Um, my my route that I did on my bicycle was very much dictated by the route of the race rather than the Western Fronts. Um, Having said that, I've still managed to cycle the length of the Western Front twice. So, um, but I think, you know, if I was advising anyone about walking the Western Front or bits of it or cycling, you know, I would, I would encourage them to try and find things that they want to see and then find a suitable way of transitioning between those places. And there is almost always a, a natural way of doing it that will take in additional sites of interest. Um, there is so much of interest that, you know, it's not hard to pick a route. Um, you know, if you were in the footsteps of the Americans, for instance, you know, you'd go to Bellow Wood, you would also go to um, Nancy and that part of the Vosges where the Americans practiced for the San Miguel um, attack. So, you know, you could, it would be very, very easy to spend two weeks on your bicycle visiting all the sites of interest to Americans 
um, because they're all kind of grouped together in that that part of the world. Um, but no, I, I encourage people to look at a map, see what they like and do it. Um, I actually just had a sudden thought and, and, and now it has escaped me. Um, <laughs> so Jonah, we'll be editing this part out because I'm completely like, uh, what? Don't worry, uh, don't worry. Um, did you doze off? <laughs> I did not doze off, but something that you said about, um, oh, I know. It may be the most most critical question. Uh, coming from a pilgrimage paradigm, yep. at any point in your journey, this time, because I, I know that you've had other experiences, I did not see the word pilgrimage or, or in your book or you sort of uh, frame your journey uh, as a pilgrimage. Did this thought cross your mind? No. <laughs> um I was, my father was a, a Church of England priest. Um, I am not a religious person. Uh, I have some quite <laughs> strong views about organized religion. Um, and so for me, it, <sighs> pilgrimage is a, is a difficult word um, in that for me, a pilgrimage is walking barefoot from somewhere to some Santiago to Compostela or, you know, whichever. It, it, it's a very specific, definite thing with a very specific, definite uh, end place, you know, pilgrimage to Canterbury or to Santiago or to Rome or. Um, and what I was doing was not a pilgrimage. I know that people who came over specifically to visit their loved one's grave that is absolutely a pilgrimage i get that um but i wasn't really doing that and so for me i was following in the footsteps of some or wheel tracks of some remarkable sportsmen and some incredible soldiers and some remarkable people um, but i didn't feel like it was a sort of start finish and end it was it was more of a sort of endless loop um, I just happened to stop at uh, Strasbourg so for me pilgrimage wasn't really wasn't really in my thoughts it was it was a tribute rather than a pilgrimage for me um, and that's what I feel that I'm doing uh, you know, when I, whenever I'm on the battlefields, um, I am paying tribute to these men. I'm not making a pilgrimage. Um, I don't know if that makes sense to you. It does make sense. And, and I appreciate you uh, articulating very well why it wasn't a pilgrimage and what a pilgrimage is to you. I think we have a very, uh, currently a very broad uh, understanding that pilgrimage is sort of means anything. And then, mm. you know, at the same time, if that's the case, it means nothing. Uh, so I, we are in a, in a strange space just around what the term means. Um, and, and of course I was very, very intrigued and fascinated and excited to read about the, the pilgrimages that occurred in the 1920s and thirties. Mm. Um, over the last couple of years, I've really gotten into, to this space and, and had not realized before that, that the journeys were classified as pilgrimages. Yeah. Uh, so 
it seems like your work has now expanded uh, to the Italian front. Uh, and I'm curious about what you're, what you're doing now and how you have linked this, the previous work at the Western front and now are moving um, east. Okay, so one of the things that I did for uh, the Zone Rouge book was look into my maternal grandfather's war service in some detail. Um, and it transpired that the last year of the war, he was transferred from France to the Italian front. Um, I won't go into enormous depth about the Italian front, no matter how interesting I think it is. But, but basically, the French and the British sent a few divisions each to Italy because the Italians had had an absolute disaster at a place called Caporetto. And the Italians were about to be knocked out of the war. So the French and the British sent divisions to prop up the Italians. My grandfather was one of them. And one of the few memories I have of my grandfather was that he absolutely loved Italy and all things Italian. Um, he went back many, many times after his service, but he, he served there from November 1917 until actually April 1919. Uh, it was April before he was demobbed from there. Um, so I, I wanted to know a bit more about the Italian front and then realised that there are actually only about five books in English about the Italian front. It is very much a neglected part of the First World War. So I thought I'll do a bit of digging into the Italian front, see what my grandfather was up to, uh, where he was fighting. And from there, it's kind of grown into this behemoth um, that I've been working on for a couple of years. Uh, and being as I like cycling around battlefields, I took my bicycle to Italy and I cycled from Trieste uh, in the far east to the Swiss border, um, the Stelvio Pass. So that was about 700 miles, very, very mountainous. Uh, most of most of the Italian front is a bit like the Rocky Mountains. It's very high, very snowy, very inhospitable. And just the idea that people were fighting at 12,000 feet above sea level to me seemed extraordinary. So, so from a, a, a glimpse at my grandfather's service record, it's turned into this, I'm going to write the, a definitive book about uh, the Italian front. And I've been back half a dozen times I've now become a, a mountaineer as well as a cyclist because, you know, a lot of these battlefields require ice axes and things to get to. So, so that's, that's kind of where my interest now lies. Um, I haven't finished with the Western Front by any stretch, but I've kind of turned my attention uh, to Italy. Do you find, um, in addition to climbing, that you are able to experience the same uh, or similar uh, contact with the, the terrain on, on your bike in Italy as you have found in, in France and, and Belgium? Even more so, actually, because the Italian front, most of the battlefields are at very high altitude and they've never really been cleared because there was no need. It wasn't farmland. You know, I go to the place where my great uncle was mortally wounded outside Ypres, and there's an enormous cheese factory one side. And it's very, you know, it, it's flat 
pasture land and it's very difficult on the western front to get a real idea of what was happening where there's not much left now apart from the cemeteries there are a few museums a few trenches preserved but you go to Italy and it's like they just finished yesterday and all went home um, so for me it's actually much easier to envisage what was happening because it all looks exactly the same as it did a hundred years ago um, you know you find shells lying around you find ammunition there's endless amounts of barbed wire there are unexploded shells um last trip i came home with a live hand grenade um don't try this at home folks <clears throat> and definitely don't try to fly with this no. <laughs> uh, we, we've learned our lesson in the past couple of months people trying to fly with hand grenades that they're taking from battlefields do not do that don't but do i that. suppose it's a little easier um when you're cycling yeah um so are you are you finding that other people are starting to discover the italian front in the same way or is it a, is it a situation where it feels more private because people just aren't tra traversing it in this way it feels very private in the you know i i went to a battlefield on the millet massif um and there are completely intact trench systems you know the only thing missing are cannons and people um but i didn't see a single person the entire day i was there um and so it is very personal on that level the thing I find very frustrating is the British will not engage with it. The British are very centred on Ypres and the Somme. And so, you know, they won't even go further south than the Somme. You, you don't get many v British people at Verdun, for instance, or Saint-Mihiel or the Argonne. Um, so the British are very uh, myopic when it comes to their interest in the First World War. Basically, if it's not to do with the British Expeditionary Force, they don't care. Uh, I'm trying to change that bit by bit, but it, it is quite difficult because although there were 80,000 British soldiers in Italy, um, it's not part of the British kind of legend, if you know what I mean. You know, the British legend is Passchendaele and the first day of the Somme. That's, that's what we obsess about. And so to try and get the British public to engage further afield quite difficult um but i'm hoping that my book will make it accessible make people go oh actually i could go on holiday there and see some interesting stuff so you know it's for me it's all about engaging with the subject and it's it's easier for me in italy um and the coffee is so much better than france <laughs> Oh, and the mountain air, I think, is good for for. It health. is very good. Uh, yeah. I heard very hard work. You know, some getting to some of those mountain battlefields requires several days of hiking. And, yes. Um, yeah, exhausting stuff. But it, you know, when you get there, you've got the place to yourself, and you're in a place that is unbelievably beautiful. You know, that's staggering. Do you have a sense of of the timeline for publication of this book on the Italian front? <laughs> uh, I, no, I don't. The the problem is that I cannot stop researching. Um, I I the struggle is real. I it is difficult, especially when you're dealing with a, a subject matter that 
has so many rabbit holes and hasn't been explored, it's hard to know when to stop uh, yeah. because you know there's just more there. If I if I was going to do a popular history type job on it, I could have stopped two years ago. I could have basically rehashed what's in everybody else's book and put it out there. But that's not what I want to do. You know, I want, and I hope this kind of came through in Zone Rouge, but I want people to pause at least once a page and go, oh my goodness, I didn't know that. Or, ooh, that's interesting. Um, and so th there is so much about Italy that that is there to explore. Um, but it's so difficult because I don't speak Italian, I don't speak German, and I'm reading an Italian and German books using Google Translate. So uh, it's a slow process. It's not the most accurate process. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm like, I would hope to have something in print in 2023, but I'm not 100% sure. I need to talk to publishers. I've, I have a literary agent who despairs of me because he says, you know, we, we need to know when might it be ready? I go, I, sorry, Nick, I just don't know. I'm not ready. It's not ready. Um, and so my wife thinks I'll still be doing this in 10 years time, but. <laughs> she's probably right. Uh, it may not be on the exact topic, but she's probably nope. right. You'll oh, yeah. have found there a will new, be something else. There a will new be rabbit something. hole. Yeah. Uh, Will you utilize the same style that you used in, in Zone Rouge, which is a combination of your personal experience along with the historical events uh, that, that happened in, in that space? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it will be more conversational in style in, in like Zone Rouge than a traditional history book. Um, you know, I, I don't want to write just a history book. I want it to be part travelogue, part history book, part battlefield guide. You know, I want to put in useful information because when I first went to the Italian front, there was nothing in English to tell me where to go. And so you know, a lot of it was trial and error. And, and I want to put in useful advice, you know, not opening times of museums, but, you know, if you want to see whatever it is, then these are the places you should go and look. Um, so, and I want to weave, I like weaving, interweaving storylines so that it, it doesn't become too pedestrian. You know, if you just do it chronologically, it can be quite a pedestrian process. So by, by mixing in my narrative with the history and with other things, then uh, I think, you know, you get, you get a more engaging uh, book and it, it it helps the reader to travel along it. it. Yes, and I think it speaks to what you said earlier about your own perspective that history or these sites are not are, are nonlinear, and that comes across in the in the writing that the that uh, the the site, the event, the people, your own experience. It's it's layered. There are ties of the past. There are thoughts that you're having, you know, right in the moment that you're there. And then you're mm. also um, in some way stepping back and as uh, as an observer reporting on what occurred. Yeah. And that's that's what I aim for. I, I hope that it's it's a pleasing way of doing it. I, I do occasionally get remarks from people who don't understand. Is the book history? Is it novel? Is it travel? And I'm going, why does it have to be any of those things? Can it not just be what it is? 
Um, and I think some people find it difficult because it's not one specific thing. It doesn't conform to their pigeonhole stereotype. So, so for some people that can be a bit challenging. Um, I like to think that most of the people who've read it have kind of engaged with that sort of slightly meandering convoluted narrative. Um, I hope so anyway. I, I think particularly for people who have been to these sites, the, the way you've written, it makes sense because the, this is exactly the thinking and the, the, the research that we're doing and our own thoughts on the matter and we're yeah. retracing and it's about us and it's about the people who came before us and mm -hmm. it's thoughts about, well, what could happen in the future if we didn't do this again? Yeah. Uh, so I, I appreciated um, and appreciate your writing style. Oh, thank you. Um, anything else that I, that I have not inquired about that you think um, is important for either our knowledge about Zone Rouge or your future work um, on the Italian front that we can uh, look forward to in the, in the next year or two? Um, I mean, if you're interested in the Italian front, uh, give me a follow on Twitter because I try out all my theories and all my little stories on my Twitter feed. Uh, which is at Masaccio60, if anyone's interested. Um, and, and I do like to, I like to engage with social media and uh, people, I like it when people ask me questions. I like it that, you know, they, they can look at some of my output and go, wow, that's amazing. And so, so I think for me, social media is a really good barometer of what other people think. Okay, it's, you know, you, you are in a sort of echo chamber up to a point, but it, it does give me the opportunity to, to talk directly to, to other historians, to readers, to all sorts of people. Um, and I find that very useful. So if anyone's interested in the Italian stuff, then by all means do that. Um, I, think, I think my kind of takeaway from, certainly from Zone Rouge is that the thing I find found most interesting in some respects was the civilians, the civilian population of the Zone Rouge, the hardships, the difficulties. Um, and I think th that also applies to the Italian front. You know, there were 6,000 square miles of Italy that were occupied by the, by the Austrians for a year. Um, and the privations, the hardships, the violence, um, was horrific and and it seems to me that it's the civilians who always get the crappy end of the stick um and rarely get any of the the kind of memorialization or the 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 empathy you know people coming back to the zone rouge they were living in appalling squalid conditions no running water corpses everywhere human excrement up to your knees, you know, the, the whole state of the battlefields immediately after the war was shockingly primitive and awful. And, and these poor women and men who came back to what was left of their homes, you know, they're living in their cellars, they're trying to grow cabbages amongst the corpses. It's, it's those civilians that I find quite interesting. I, I wanted to, to kind of bring them out of the shadow in in some respects and so i i hope that zone rouge the, my book the zone rouge 
um, gave them a voice of sorts um, and say, actually, it's not just the soldiers. You know, in Britain, very much, we are so uh, British-centric that, you know, after November the 11th, 1918, nothing happened. It, everyone went home, everything was fine. And the fact that there were civil wars throughout Europe into the mid-20s, uh, millions died in those, um, never gets a mention. Uh, the millions of civilians who were displaced, uh, whose homes were destroyed, you know, they, they never get a voice. Um, and so, I, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of about Zone Rouge is, is giving a voice to those, those people who don't normally get a, a voice. Thank you for ending with that. Uh, in addition to the voices, you also have some very poignant uh, photographs of the the civilians who came home mm. um, to this desolation, and the the photos I think speak volumes for what was going on um, for for their realities um, yeah. when they returned home. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for your time and for for talking um, today about your book um, and your upcoming publication, which I hope we'll be able to see in the next One year day. or two. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a website? I wanted to mention that also, or I, we can I, primarily find you on social media. Find me on social media. Okay. I do have a website, but it's moribund. So. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it just sits there doing nothing. So if if you want to find me on social media, that's probably the best thing. Twitter is my social media okay. of choice. Um, All right, excellent. Be delighted to chat to anyone who wants to talk to me. All right, thank you so much, Tom. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University, New England, and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and Facebook, or by email, info at MeaningfulJourneys.net, or our website, www.MeaningfulJourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.